The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Welcome. There are many things in the world that are going on that people can get excited about, people can get emotional about, people can go into fear about. It is certainly true that many movies are bringing to light different types of things like the big short or spotlight or many documentaries that bring to light things like climate change or domestic violence, women's rights, education for children or human trafficking and animal rights. All of these things are places that touch the heart, that touch the human spirit where we want something to change. We've reached a critical confluence of trends, climate change and water, too much or too little, the collapse of antibiotic medicine and the rise of superbugs, the rise of the virtual corporate states replacing nation states as the center of power, the transition out of the carbon era, and the realization that for the first time in our history, being born white will no longer confer privilege to note some of the most powerful trends. We are in a semi-managed crisis of transition. Underlying most of these negative trends is the same issue. Profit is our principle and often only social priority. The data, we must replace profit and wellness with wellness. The well-being of each individual, family unit, group, community, nation, and the planet must be our first priority. We are talking today with Stephen Schwartz, who is the author of The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. It's a really, really good book. Uh, it's inspired by his own powerful experiences during the civil rights movement and other social movements throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. He reveals how the dynamics of change are learnable, and he explains the eight laws of individual and social behavior that can enable any person or small group, even ordinary people without great wealth, official position, or physical power, to bend the arc of history and create successful, lasting transformation. So I want to dive right in and welcome Stefan to 1111 Talk Radio and, and jump right into some of this juicy material because I think one of the most important things for individuals today is they want to live a life of meaning, they want to make a difference, they want to have a purpose, and they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And this book answers a lot of those questions, both in theory and practical application and understanding how to move into that place. And you start the book off by talking about beingness and how it is a quotidian choice. Tell us what that means. Tell us how we start to become more of ourselves through beingness, Stefan. Well, the the idea of beingness, uh, which is, you can say, is the the totality of our choices, of our character. It, you know, if you if you 
fly over between the United States and Canada or between France and Germany, you look down, you you don't really see a line on the on the ground like you would see on a map. And yet nobody 50 feet from any of those borders has any doubt which country they belong to. And then why is that? And the answer is because of the national character. And national character is the aggregate of all those individual choices collectively. It's the aggregate. So who you are is defined by all these thousands of little daily choices. That's what quotidian means. It's just ordinary daily things. You know, when you go into a supermarket and you buy a tube of toothpaste, most people don't even think about it. They buy the toothpaste that their mother turned them on to or their college roommate loaned them or whatever. They don't really give a lot of thought to it. Or the corporations that made that toothpaste, do they pay their people well? Do they give them leave? Do they have good retirement plans? That sort of thing. These choices that we make have a huge effect. You don't think of an individual choice as making such a big deal. But when you see them in aggregate, you can watch how things change. And you can look at today, for instance, uh, just take the shift from gay to LGBT. You know, nobody passed a law that said we had to do that. It's just that uh, people made a decision that where they would have said gay, they would say LGBT, which is not just a change in term, it's also a change in a concept of, what it means to be a human being, how you can be a human being. And when you see it in aggregate, you see the whole culture changes. And how powerful this is, is just consider this story from Gandhi. Shortly before he was assassinated, a reporter went up to him and asked him, how did you force the British to leave India? You didn't have an army, you don't have any money, you have no official position. Um, I mean, you weren't part of the government. How did you force the most powerful country um, on the, in the world at that time to leave India? And his answer was, it wasn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It wasn't what we said that mattered, although that mattered as well. It was the nature of our character that led the British to choose to leave India. And you have to note the force-choose difference. So when we make choices... We don't think that our individual little choice of, of soap detergent or, or pet food or toilet paper or paper towels, whatever, we just don't think that that makes a lot of difference. But when there is a shift in consciousness and people become aware and they stop making certain purchases, it has a huge effect on the corporations. We have... And indeed, I think it would be fair to say there is no force on the planet as powerful as the collective decisions of ordinary people. And when they collectively make changes, the, whatever it is, whatever the unit that they're a part of, changes it's as well. So it is one of the great secrets. Nobody ever tells you this, that you as an ordinary person can have a big effect on change, but you can't. You said something, Stephanie, you said something really important that I don't want to move past because it was said quickly and it's subtle, but it 
to me it was very, very profound. And, and it was when you were talking about just toothpaste and choosing the right toothpaste. And I think we live in a society where it's so easy to become self-obsessed and self-centered and really think that the entire world revolves around our little world and our little family. And we may believe that we're doing better in, in for the environment just by, you know, choosing certain things or better for our health by choosing a more organic brand. But you went a step beyond that and you started talking about you know, do they do they pay their people well? Do they take care of their people? Do they allow their does the company allow um, time off? And and that extends beyond even the product or the use of the product with the person. That's now really starting to live in other people's worlds, and and that takes it to a whole different level because even the most spiritual people can become self-obsessed because they're so involved in their inner work and they try to live in the bubble that's not the negative bubble but only positivity. That I'd like for you to expand a little bit on that because I think that, that to think of these little day-by-day choices in the way that you're saying, to even be able to ripple out and expand it to beyond the choice that affects us but really affects other people's day-to-day lives as well is quite profound. Yes, we don't because... We're never told about this, and so people don't think about it. But the, but the reality is, I mean, to take marriage equality as an example. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, it was, it was unthinkable. I mean, in Bill Clinton's administration, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which was basically an attempt to define who could get married. Today... If you look at survey after survey, you will see that the overwhelming number of Americans think that marriage equality, that is, that people who love each other ought to be able to marry. But what what they're also saying in that change in consciousness is that we support stable, loving relationships. And when you support stable, loving relationships in, in, in a society, you create wellness. And so the power of the individual is this. I mean, you can make it very simple. Whenever you are faced with a, uh, a choice, first of all, become aware that you're making a choice. And as I say, most people don't actually realize that. They don't, they don't stop and think about that. So first of all, just become aware that you have a choice to make. And then of the options that are available to you, even though none of them may be particularly good options, but inevitably one will always be slightly better, will be more compassionate, more life-affirming, more productive of wellness. And so whenever you make a choice, always choose the, the option that is the most compassionate and life-affirming as you understand it at that moment. That's what Gandhi was trying to say. It was the choices that people made, these little tiny quotidian choices, because they create, when they are seen in aggregate, they create character, the the character of the culture. And we can see how this shifts over time so that Things which were once acceptable become unacceptable behavior, um, making jokes about women, for instance. I mean, you used to hear things on television and uh, comics you'd never be able to say today because people would just be outraged by it. 
They just they simply wouldn't tolerate it because consciousness has changed. And it's, it's working with consciousness that is where the power is. So when individuals make choices which are compassionate and life-affirming, and they do so, and other people do so as well, then there is a shift in consciousness. And where there is a shift in consciousness, it is possible for ordinary people to produce wellness. You move into speaking about intention awareness, and, and this is part of those choices. And you make a distinction between looking and seeing. And when we are we are moving in the world and, and individuals are wanting to be a change agent or even not even really realizing that that's what they're becoming by making these choices, what is that distinction between looking and seeing? Well, actually, uh, Carlos Castaneda gave me, uh, told me that one night, and he wrote it up in a couple of his books, too, I think. Um, it's the difference between just being, um, just sort of, passing through and not paying any particular attention and being actually seeing what you're looking at and stopping and taking a moment to think about what are the implications of this. And we go through most of our life just looking. We don't really pay much attention to what's going on. But if we awaken to an idea, then we begin to see it. And once you see that idea then you can see it how it plays out day by day in all sorts of ways. And so what I'm suggesting and what the my my work is all science based. It's all based on data that that um it's not about speculation or, you know, sort of my philosophical idea that it, this is all predicated on on very careful data research. If you if you look at changes, how things happened, I mean, there's a, to give you an example, yesterday I saw a study that, that rated how individuals uh, evaluate corporations that they do business with on a regular basis. And I was very struck by the fact that Costco ranks very high and Walmart ranks very low. And I thought, why hmm. is that? Hmm. And I think the answer to that is, if you look at those two corporations and you look at how they treat their people, you look at how they respond to the customers, you look at just the sort of, I don't know how to describe it, the vibe of the place, mm -hmm. you can see why people prefer the one over the other. because And they make different choices as a result of that. So we can see, as we shift our choices, the effect that that has on huge corporations. And more than that, you can see how whole governments change. You know, if you look back in history, you think, when I, for instance, was younger, certainly when I was in government as, a, as, a, as an adult and was working in the government uh, in Washington, you know, everybody thought of the Soviet Union as this huge monolithic force on the earth that was, you know, we thought in terms and we talked in terms of the bipolar world as if only the Soviet Union and the United States really mattered at a certain level and that this was a sort of unchanging bipolarity that 
that would be with us forever. And yet the Soviet Union is gone. It didn't last but about 73 years. If you look at National Socialism in uh, the, the Nazis, you know, this was this huge force that swept across Europe and millions died. It only lasted between 10 and 20 years. Why? Because people made different choices. And when you get a collective intention, when, when collective intention forms, just exactly as Gandhi pointed out, then things which are thought to be unthinkable not only become thinkable, they become realities. So when you consider, for instance, what's coming up in this 2016 election, you realize that the way you vote in this election is going to change the course of American history. And in this election, more than almost any election that uh, in my lifetime, there is a dichotomy between the two parties that's so clear and so straightforward that you can see clearly why a choice for one or the other will produce very different outcomes. That's why Absolutely, I and I'd like to get into more of that when we come back on our next segment. Successful, nonviolent, life-affirming social transformations share certain characteristics, and they are learnable. Stephen Schwartz has tried to do three things in his book, The Eight Laws of Change. First, to bring into focus how successful and enduring change begins with individuals and goes through a process of reaching a critical consensus. Second, to present the reader with actual stories illustrating how these techniques are used to achieve social transition that is compassionate and life-affirming. And third, to highlight the social and neuroscience research that underpins why this process works. This, then, is the story of how people who did not hold official positions have great power as the world calculates such things or have notable wealth change the world in compassionate and life-affirming ways, and how you can too. You can find out more about the eight laws of change and other work by Stephen Schwartz at his website, stephanaschwartz.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. Com, and you can get the book on Amazon or find out about his other books as well if you go to his website. We'll be right back with Stephen Schwartz and the Eight Laws of Change. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22. 33, 444, people all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. Engage with experts and topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized. So you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more out of life? Tired of settling in relationships? your career, health, or finances, want to experience greater aliveness. I am Simran. 
I support people in listening to their conversations with the universe, the guiding signs, symbols, and synchronicity. I mentor people to anchor in trust, love, and confidence to live their heart's desires. Let me guide you in embracing the challenges and the obstacles so you embody and integrate the gifts they bring. No more human doing. You are here for being, bounteously and abundantly. Experience your soul's natural rhythm, your powerful essence. Don't shrink back any longer. Release the struggle. Learn how to let go. Create in different dimensions. Transform separateness, grief, anxiety, anger, and chaos into living your destiny. Connect with me at IamSimran.com. Live more freely, spontaneously, and joyfully. Don't conform. Live a life of courage. Let's start now. Through my online courses, mentoring programs, or one-on-one coaching, it's time to change your world. Connect at IamSimran.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Definitely check out the latest issue of 1111 Magazine that is on stands now. It is filled with a variety of very rich information and bridges the dark and light that's on the planet, helping you to understand where some of the places of social transformation can occur and how you can take part of that and do the work on the inside while you tap into inspired action to take steps on the outside. I am delighted to have my guest, Stefan Schwartz, on, and we are discussing his book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. Stefan explains the eight laws of individual and social behavior that can enable any person or small group, even ordinary people, to take a bend into the arc of history and create successful, lasting transformation. He shares the stories of individuals who have actually changed history, such as Martin Luther King, Jr., Benjamin Franklin, Mother Teresa, and Mahatma Gandhi, detailing how they implemented the strategies and tactics of the eight laws to achieve their success. Stefan also explores research in the fields of medicine, neuroscience, biology, and quantum physics to reveal the science of how these laws of change work. He explains why compassionate and life-affirming changes have the most enduring impact and shows how each of the eight laws cultivates the sense of beingness. What struck me about the book is the science. It is the stories and the nature of the many people that he illustrates through these stories of how they truly have changed the world and also how spirituality fits into that. He goes into a lot about the brain and about non-local and local consciousness, and it's really quite a fascinating book, especially if you are embarking on making a change in your community, in society, in politics, even in your own families as you raise your children. So as we get back to things, Stefan, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of the political climate right now and something that you said earlier. You, you made a comment about that there was a time when if you know people had cartoons about um, demeaning women or different things like that, and there has been an instance where when we have a candidate that has made comments that are kind of crass at times, and yet there's a certain part in the book where you say, and I think you were talking about Hitler, where he said, uh, where, where uh, it was said he was not really a leader, but he was stating the voice of the people. And, and I think that that's kind of what Donald Trump is espousing to do. He's saying that he's 
stating the voice of the people, the anger of the people, yet he does do some of these things that are not necessarily uh, respectful or kind or all-inclusive. So how do these two things fit, and and can an individual, is, is beingness a, a, a positive attribute, is it a negative attribute, or is beingness just beingness? Oh, beingness is just beingness. The, to pick up the thought about uh, Trump, that actually, the, the, the reference that I made in the book was a comment that Carl Jung made about Hitler, and uh, you know, the great Swiss psychoanalyst. And he said, to really understand what ha- happened in Germany, you have to understand that Hitler didn't, re- didn't lead the German people. Hitler was the German people. He was the expression of the angry, fearful id that resulted at the end of World War One in the Treaty of Versailles and how really sort of draconian it was and that this had created amongst the German people because they, even though on the surface it, Germany looked like one of the most liberal, one of the most sophisticated cities, cultures in Europe, I mean, its cities were were notable for the sophistication of the city how could how could a person like hitler have risen to power in a in a culture that was this intellectual and sophisticated and and that jung's response was it's not that he led it it's that he was an expression of it and i think you you're quite correct i i think donald trump i'm not i i, I never want to make Hitler comparisons, and that's always of course. Don't and I'm want not to go there, that, but, but it was. Yeah. But I would. Well, I would say this. I think that Donald Trump is the expression of the fearful, angry id of yes. particularly white America, because we are. Because there are so many trends that are going on now, which threaten the old status quo. You mentioned in uh, in your intro. The fact that for the first time in 500 years, being born white will not confer privilege, and that the Anglo-European-American culture values will no longer be the only culture values that determine how the world operates, because China and India and other countries, you know, are becoming huge powers in their own right, and they have they come out of very different cultural perspectives. So for a certain percentage of people, that produces a lot of fear. And Donald Trump is, I would say, is the creature of the great wealth inequity that has occurred in the United States and the fear that it has produced, as well as the fact that we are, we are becoming a majority-minority country, and about, depending on exactly how you look at it and which statistics you look at. By about 20, 40, 45, we're going to be a majority-minority country. Some states already are. And, and that probably doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother me. But there are people who are seriously freaked out about this. It's like you're taking away, you know, in the game Monopoly, you go by and you get that little card, the get-out-of-jail card. It's like people are losing their get-out-of-jail card, and they mm. are deeply unhappy about this. And Donald Trump articulates that fear, that anger, that kind of bullying swagger that, that they look for. If you look at Hitler, it was the same kind of thing. And it's because 
these people come to represent a, an expression of the collective. And that's what this 2016 election is about. We are really being more than almost any other time in our lifetimes. We are facing an election in which the future of the country will be determined. It's not just it's not just that the next president will probably get three or maybe four Supreme Court justice appointments, which, as you can see by the response that's going on now, everybody recognizes that the Supreme Court ultimately is a much more powerful and lasting influence than any other part of the government, partly because justices get lifetime appointments. And so... People are very concerned about what the nature of the court will be. And, and America and Americans are being confronted in this election with a choice. Are we going to choose wellness? Are we going to choose that which is compassionate and life-affirming? Or are we going to choose that which is fearful and angry and, and uh, blustery and bullying are we going to choose military violent solutions or are we going to choose wellness oriented solutions? But you know, Stephen, there's a part of this that is also our internal responsibility. You you have towards the end of the book um chapters that go into the politics, which I, I found very interesting. And I've always loved the science of the brain and it's true that the neurons that wire together fire together and, and we are here to either follow our stories and our patterns or we're going to allow ourselves to go into the unknown thinking. And there's a paragraph that is written by neurologist Durant Rees where he makes the point, it is very significant because uh, it does not suggest that there is something, it does suggest that there is something about political attitudes that are either encoded in our brain structure through our experience or that our brain structure in some way determines or results in our political attitudes. And it's also known from neuroscientist research that when we stay in the part of our brain that is what we're used to, that is our history and is our fear base, that we'll continue to make the same choices, we'll continue to do the same things. So to then branch out and be willing to do something different when we have this type of political atmosphere around us, how do we make those very intentional and aware choices when it comes to, to people, if we're driven by those old stories, old patterns, old ways of thinking? Well, the, uh, the Jarrett Reese quote, and, and in, indeed that, that part of the book, one of the things that I, I had not fully appreciated when I began doing research on this and became more and more involved with it as I really dug into it, was the rise of what I guess you could call the the psychoneurology of politics, because it turns out that um, about 27% of the population have overactive right amygdalas. And the amygdala is the little gland in the brain which is involved with fight or flight. And whenever you're in a state of fear, or, or particularly, it kicks in because it's fight or flight. And unfortunately, when that happens, rational thought disappears, which I think explains why, for instance, Donald Trump is able to say all kinds of outrageous things that nobody else could say 
and yet get away with it. I mean, you keep hearing the commentators talk about how he ought to come apart as a result of some statement he's just made. It ought to destroy him, but it doesn't. And the answer right. is because I think because there is a significant percent of the population who, whose, whose neuroanatomy, for want of a better way of describing it, is literally driving them. Now, this overactive amygdala issue is important because it correlates very strongly with conservative religiosity and conservative politics. It is a, it is a fear response, and, and we are seeing that fear response because uh, not only, I think, of the immediate stimulus that people are experiencing, that is, changes that are just happening immediately day to day, but also because they have a presentiment. We know from laboratory research, for instance, that studies show that a couple of seconds before you actually get a particular stimulus, your body has already begun to respond. Well, that's at the individual level in a laboratory. If you look at this at the larger social level, and you think about if that's that effect, by the way, is called presentiment, a kind of pre-knowing, if you look at that and you see what's going on in climate change, you realize that people have a presentiment. They hear about climate change. They are seeing these storms. They are experiencing these tornadoes. All of that we are experiencing sea rise. And all of that is creating anxiety. And the way you have to deal with this is uh, you have to begin to, first of all, recognize that this is, has an effect, but also to develop proactive strategies like daily meditation, which give you a sense of centeredness and which reduce fear and anxiety. And studies show that meditators, for instance, have a much more resilient re approach to fear and anxiety than non-meditators, that they sleep better, that they have better uh, interpersonal relationships, that, um, that they're able to think more clearly, so that we have to take proactive steps in our life, and none of them uh, are, seem to be, based on the research, as as life-changing as developing the daily practice of meditation. It doesn't really matter what which technique you use. Um, it's that you develop that daily practice because the key to all of this uh, seems to be the ability to attain and, and sustain a relaxed, intentioned, focused awareness. That's also part of the looking-seeing question you were asking me earlier. When you, when you begin to work with meditation, the factors that are influencing how your life is going suddenly become much clearer to you, and you're able to make different choices. And so we need to, we need to begin to become proactive in our lives and to make choices which produce wellness not only for us and our families, but in the larger context, the culture itself, because when we get to about 10% of any cohort of people, whether it's a community or a family or a country, when 10% of the participants 
change their mind about something, the whole culture shifts, whether it's mm-hmm. the family culture or the national culture. My guest today is Stephen Schwartz, and he has written the book, The Eight Laws of Change, to create the outer changes we do have to begin with the inner reflection and the inquiry and the centeredness that meditation brings. There's another part through this Eight Laws of Change that's not a unique domain of the Quakers, of course, but it is very grounded in the Quaker movement. The first law of change is the individuals, individually and the group, collectively must share a common intention. The second law, the individuals and the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. Third law, the individuals in the group must accept that their goals may not be reached in their lifetimes and be okay with this. Fourth law, the individuals in the group must accept that they may not get credit or acknowledgement for what they've done and be authentically okay. The fifth law, each person in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, must enjoy fundamental equality even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the effort are respected. The sixth law, the individuals in the group must forswear violence in word, act, and thought. Seventh law, the individuals in the group and the group itself must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. The eighth law, the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. This is how you move to the place of beingness and how the laws work. Find out more about various stories, about how to begin understanding these laws and their presence in many different acts of change through this wonderful book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation by Stephen A. Schwartz. You can find out more about him at stephanaschwartz.com, and the book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. We'll be right back. Are you an artist, healer, teacher, author, speaker, or coach? A wellness or holistic practitioner or energy worker? Maybe you want to be. Do you desire to serve the world, share your gifts, live your dreams? I am Simran, host of 1111 Talk Radio, and I invite you to the vision of oneness. Could you use a community of support, more financial flow with less effort? Would you like to receive so you have more to give? Be a world changer, world server, do-gooder. Be a new paradigm thinker and a conscious change agent. A part of a growing community creating collective streams of prosperity and wellness. By simply serving yourself, you serve others. Feel great, have more energy, sleep better, gently detox, lose unhealthy weight and build strength. It's time for more freedom and financial flow. The vision of oneness embodies unconditional giving, commitment, simplicity, and receiving. We are a collective new way of being in commerce and creative cash flow. Learn more at thevisionofoneness.com. Register now and a member will help you begin today. Visionofoneness.com. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22. 33, 444, people all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich multi-sensory experience. 
Engage with experts and topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more out of life? Tired of settling in relationships, your career, health, or finances? Want to experience greater aliveness? I am Simran. I support people in listening to their conversations with the universe, the guiding signs, symbols, and synchronicity. I mentor people to anchor in trust, love, and confidence to live their heart's desires. Let me guide you in embracing the challenges and the obstacles so you embody and integrate the gifts they bring. No more human doing. You are here for being, bounteously and abundantly. Experience your soul's natural rhythm, your powerful essence. Don't shrink back any longer. Release the struggle. Learn how to let go. Create in different dimensions. Transform separateness, grief, anxiety, anger, and chaos into living your destiny. Connect with me at IamSimran.com. Live more freely, spontaneously, and joyfully. Don't conform. Live a life of courage. Let's start now. Through my online courses, mentoring programs, or one-on-one coaching, it's time to change your world. Connect at IamSimran.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Whaler, a veteran activist, says you have to speak truth and you have to have creative beauty, but you also have to have courage, not just physical courage to risk personal harm, but the courage to do something that society or powerful people disapprove of, the courage to challenge conventional wisdom. People react to witnessing courage, being in a little rubber boat on a tossing sea in the middle of the ocean, far from any kind of help, and next to a much larger steel ship with armed and hostile people takes courage, and people recognize that. I am interviewing today Stefan A. Schwartz. He is a distinguished consulting faculty member at Saybrook University, a research associate of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, and columnist for the peer-reviewed research journal Explore. He's the author of four books and more than 100 technical papers and has written articles for the Smithsonian, Omni, American History, and the Washington Post the New York Times, and Huffington Post as well. This book is entitled The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. And I urge everyone to pick up a copy because we each have a difference to make. We each have our own unique genius to share, and we are each here to be inspired into action. Stefan, I'd love to go into some of these eight laws of change so that people get a sense of what they're going to get through the book and also how how they perhaps are doing some of this a little bit in their lives and perhaps with a little more intentional awareness can can really anchor into something powerful. So where would you like to begin? What do you feel like is the first and most important law that people have to begin with as they start to come together with an aligned idea? Oh, that's a tough question. Which is the most important law? 
Um, hmm, I don't know. I've never been asked that question. I have to think about that <laughs> for a minute. I, I, you know, at one level, I think it would be that our personal, that our private selves and our public postures must be one and the same. Hmm. Because hypocrisy is a huge problem. I mean, we all know you you turn on the television or the radio or you open a newspaper, it seems like almost every day, somebody who has set himself or herself up as a moral authority judging how other people are behaving, it turns out that, you know, behind scenes, um, they're having some kind of illicit sexual relationship or they're, they have a drug problem or they're embezzling the money or, you know, whatever. So I think I think part of it is we have to be genuinely who we say we are. And the other part, I guess, is that 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 point is the um, uh, the seventh law. I guess the the other law that I think is particularly important is the first law, and that is that in order to create change, you have to create common intention. And everybody has this experience. And you know, if you belong to a committee for a school or a church or a, uh, a neighborhood or whatever. Trying to get everybody on the same page is not always easy to do. So you need to hammer out what is the common intention of our group. And the first law, you know, the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention is really the starting place. Gandhi understood, for instance, just to go back to him since we started there, that when he settled on the tax uh, the, the salt tax, a tax that, that Indians had to pay to, to literally make salt. I mean, you know, you could go out and get a, a bowl full of water and let it, of seawater and let it dry out and get salt, but that was illegal. You had to pay to, a tax to do that. The way he did that was to train people. I mean, and if you talk and look at the, at the accounts of the people who went through that kind of training, they describe it as being like a kind of training for the military to try to, he wanted them to be nonviolent. And by the way, while we're at that, let me say that one of the things that really surprised me in the research that I did on this book was to discover that the kind of change that we glorify and build statues about, you know, all the public parks have guys up on horses, that kind of violent change, which is a zero-sum game, somebody wins, somebody loses, that kind of change actually only succeeds about 25% of the time, and it doesn't endure the point I made about the Soviet Union and National Socialism. Whereas change which is produced through nonviolence, which involves a change in consciousness, not only succeeds 75% of the time, but it endures. And the reason it endures is that it is inclusive and embracing, and it draws people in and, and gets their hearts engaged, and it changes their consciousness. And so one of all the, of these... one of, There's a really important piece to me in your book. You were talking about Benjamin Franklin, and you wrote that change can be forced through power and coercion, but rarely has a lasting effect, but transformation, in contrast, comes from within by choice, and it's longer enduring. And, and I thought that that was a really important piece as you were talking about change. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was, I, you know, I like most people, when I first began doing research on this, I did not fully appreciate this difference between violent change and nonviolent change. I always thought that, oh, well, you know, um, we, we glorify sea battles and wars and things like that, and that those produce big change. But, uh, but if you look at the change over the last hundred years, you can see very clearly that changes which were nonviolent had much longer and more, uh, not more enduring and, and in, uh, more powerful uh, shifts in consciousness. You look at the civil rights movement in the United States, for instance. There was a, I mean, we went through a shift in consciousness. We can see that in um, gender equality. And in fact, I would say that two of the greatest trends that we're going to face in the 21st century, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, is going to be gender equality and the assimilation of minorities, which are going to come as a result of migrations. And we're already beginning to see that happen in, in Europe. This business of how do we help people assimilate into the greater whole becomes hugely important. And the gender equality issue, it really gets down to which country has the most neurons firing on its behalf. And if you suppress 50% of the population, all the women, and it takes 7 to 11% of the other half, the men, to sustain that, that structure of repression then you only have about 35% of the population who can actually do anything that advances the interests of the country as a whole. And you can see that spelled out in, in the number of patents that countries get, for instance. Uh, the entire Islamic world produces fewer patents in a decade than Japan produces in a year. And wow. There's a reason for that. When you don't let the women participate, you're cutting yourself off from a vast part of the capacity of the culture has to be responsive. So if you look at these eight laws, what you see is that, that they, and I, I'm going to stress, by the way, I did not invent these laws. They emerged as patterns of behavior and, and patterns of data outcome uh, that I saw when I began to study changes. So these these eight laws, what happens is that, that uh, movements work them out in their own way. The, the most successful one I cite in the book are the Quakers, this tiny little group of people. You know, there are less than 87,000 Quakers out of 317 million Americans at the, in, in the United States. And in the whole of the history of the United States, there have been less than half a million so all the Quakers who have ever lived in the United States wouldn't even make up a large city in the United States today. And yet, when you look at the social transformational changes which have produced wellness in, this, in the United States history, uh, abolition, the end of slavery, uh, penal reform, uh, public education, making universal public education, women's ability to vote, uh, the environmental movement, nuclear freeze. All of those movements began with a tiny little group of Quakers because this particular group of people 
who are so rare, most people have never met one, have no idea what they believe. The Society of Friends has figured out about this, these eight laws, and they have put them to work and have created these vast social changes. And they show us, they give us a model of how to do this. You know, they gather together, they meditate together, they, they very quietly, one of the laws is you have to be willing to do the work even though it may not happen in your lifetime. And I, I got this from the abolitionists. <clears throat> if you read their diaries and their correspondence, they say, uh, slavery is a moral evil and it must end. And even though it may not happen in my lifetime, I'm going to spend my life working to see that it does end. And another one of the laws is you have to be willing to do the work without getting credit for it or without getting acknowledgement, simply because it is a moral good to do it. And you can, and you can see the very fact that almost nobody knows that the Quakers began a lot of these movements, that, um, that they did so anonymously. They just did them because it was the right thing to do. And so when you, you know, life gets remarkably simple. When your choice is, I'm going to always choose the thing which is most compassionate and life-affirming as I understand it in this moment, these choices that we make all day, this is really a powerful effect because if you always choose the life-affirming option, you don't, it gets, it makes things much clearer if the, if you pick the life affirming option if you tell friends that that's what you're doing and you invite them to join you this which is what the quakers do then you you create such a mass of intention that society changes we and the other have thing the that power i know to create change yes and it, we're we're coming to the close and so i want to make sure i get a couple of other things in before we close out the show the Quakers definitely also know the importance of staying in the state of inquiry, the state of contemplation, holding the space of silence so that something can emerge. And what I did discover through the many different stories that you wrote in the book and through through reading about these eight laws is that there's a sense of unknown, a sense of mystery, a sense of innocence that is present and must be present for something new to be born. It's almost like we are leaving what we know so that we can go into something that we don't know. Can you spend a minute or two just kind of going into your perspective of that place of mystery and unknown? Well, we have to be willing to surrender old attitudes. You know, this is illustrated best in the, for me in the story of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in the 18th chapter of Genesis where the Lord appears to Abraham in front of the, who's in front of the oak grove of Memre, and he's going to go down and destroy the cities. And, and Abraham says, well, yeah, but if there were 50 good people, that is 50 people committed to the good. Now, note he doesn't say 50 good Jews or anything else. He just says 50 people committed to the good. Would you not destroy the cities, which were, this is about 1850 BCE, and there's about 25,000 people involved in these two cities. And the Lord says, yes, if there's 50 good uh, good people, I, I won't do it. 
It doesn't say that they're doing any particular thing or that they believe any particular thing, simply that they serve the good as they understand it. Anyway, they bargain it down to just 10. And so the point of this story, I mean, why does this story come down to us and many others don't, I think is that it takes a small group of people who are committed to the good and who don't have a cherished, they have a goal but not a cherished outcome. That is, like this, in the abolitionists, they wanted to end slavery, but they didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. That was the mystery. I am committed to serve the good. Exactly how this is going to play out, I don't know. But day by day, minute by minute, whenever I have an option, I am going to choose the compassionate, life-affirming option, and the mystery will play itself out. And I think this is a very important part of this, that it's, it gets much harder if you have a cherished outcome of exactly how it's supposed to happen. If Thank you, you surrender Stephen. all of that, if things good things can happen, you can't anticipate. This is a powerful book, and I urge everyone to pick up The Eight Laws of Change by Stephen A. Schwartz. You can find out more at his website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can get the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Again, from Whaler, the veteran activist, he acknowledged that there's a spirituality to all of this. It's important, not a religion, but a sense that we are involved in something greater than ourselves, more important and fundamental than ourselves. We felt that we were hooking into a deeper purpose. Some were Buddhists, some were Quakers, some had come through a psychedelic culture and were on a shamanic path. Some were socially progressive Christians and Jews. St. Francis was one of the biggest heroes. Many of us were the sons and daughters of the World War II generation that can do spirit of confronting global challenge that was a very much a part of us, along with the music and art and the writing. And you know, on the ships today, you will see that the humility is still there among the people. He wanted to say that social change success is not about money or power or any of the things that people usually fret about. If you have the elements of truth, critical thinking, beauty, courage, humility, a willingness to work without concern for credit, a tolerance for mystery, and a serious patient commitment. If you have enough of these qualities, and if they are strong enough as elements in the collective intention, you can have a successful social movement and create change, no matter what anyone says to the contrary. I urge you to definitely pick up Stefan's book, The Eight Laws of Change. Next week, my guest will be Carol Barker, and we will be discussing love in the age of ecological apocalypse. Until next time, in love, of love, with love, and as love, I am Simran. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simron next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 